The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapters 10 and 11. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They would have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. 
Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Anybody want to tag me in? Tag in? Anybody? I tried to get Rob to do it, but no, just joking. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. Welcome to Sacred City Church. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, before we jump into our study of the book of Revelation this morning, I'd like to share with you a really quick uh, ministry update and a request. Um, our vision at Sacred City is pretty simple. We want to make disciples. We want to plant churches. We want to renew our city. That process starts with making disciples. The only way to make disciples is in community and on mission. That's the way Jesus did it. That's the way we want to do it. That means every believer is meant to be living in a missional community and sharing their faith with outsiders and serving our city and our neighbors in some way. And as we do that, people come to Christ and our church grows. Uh, we have grown by about 50 people in the past year. And for that, we are very grateful to God. Um, but it's the next piece of our mission that's a little unique. As we grow, we don't want to keep adding services that just makes all of our volunteers uh, spend more time here and less in the city, less serving the city, uh, less with their family. It stresses staff members out who have to have a Saturday night service or two or three Sunday morning services or Sunday night service or whatever. And we don't want to just build larger buildings either. That is very expensive, and it isn't how the New Testament church did things. When they grew, they planted churches. So I'm praying and asking God that over the next 30 years, we would plant literally dozens of churches across our cities and across our states. Uh, now that's never, as far as I know, that's never been done before in the, in the Quad Cities. A few pastors and a few people have kind of grown some large churches, but no one has planted churches that consecutively keep on planting more churches. And that is what our cities need, kind of a church planting um, movement, let's say. We need many more gospel-centered churches pushing back darkness in the Quad Cities, sharing the gospel, living in community and on mission. And statistics show us that um, as we plant churches, that church plants, they're small, they're organic, they're often weird. Um, and as you plant churches, People who don't know Christ come to faith in church plants far more statistically than they do in established churches or they do in big churches. Church, church plants attract unbelievers. Maybe it's because it's so weird and small and awkward. We just invite anybody to help us get rid of the awkwardness, right? 
Um, I don't know, but whatever, for whatever reason, church plants, I mean, that's why our church, in the first year we existed, or first year and a half we existed, we, we uh, baptized 30 new believers in our, in our church. And this past year, I don't know what we've done in this past year, but I don't, it's maybe around that, I'm not really sure. But we're a lot bigger than we were back then. So we, to, be, to be clear, we are not ready to plant another church right now. It took us about two years to kind of stabilize after planting Sacred City Moline. But the elders and I believe that now is the time to begin to prepare to plant another church, possibly in 2020. And this is kind of how we would like to begin. We want to recruit and train a a new church planting resident to come on staff with us to be trained and equipped to possibly plant a church in, in 2020. Now, uh, the reality of this is more than likely, um, here's, here's the deal. Planting a church is one of the most difficult things you can do in all the world, all right? You've got to be a pastor, a shepherd, and an entrepreneur, and anybody that doesn't believe it, that's fine. Uh, you can look at the statistics and see how successful most church plants are. But it's very hard, and what that means is guys that, that can plant a church, they're not at home in their mom's basement right now playing video games, Right? You can't just say, hey, man, we're, we need a resident. You know, I think I want to do that and just come on and, you know, he doesn't need any money. He doesn't need any stuff. No, more than likely, a guy who's going to be able to plant a church has already leading a business. He's already leading in some fashion, maybe in a ministry. He's already doing, he's already succeeding in some fa- facet of his life, leading well. He's got a family. He's got kids. He's got responsibilities. And so in order for us to recruit a guy like that, we've got to be able to say, here's a salary. Here's a salary package for you. You can support your family while you're doing this. And what that means for us is we basically need to raise about five to $7,000 per month extra from what we have in our budget right now in order to recruit and train this guy. And it's gonna take a year, possibly a year and a half, maybe two years at the most to train and equip this person to go out and to plant another church. So, that's what it means for us. I, you know, I don't talk about money very often around here. We need to raise another five to $7,000 per month. That's, that's, I'm just going to put it out there for you. Now, there are many of you who have been on the sidelines watching our ministry. You've been blessed by our preaching. You've been blessed by our missional community life, that God has done something in your heart, in your life. You've been stirred. Your affections have been stirred for God. You've been encouraged in your walk with Christ. And now I am asking you to step up and to step in. We need you to start giving back to this ministry so that we can do more ministry and reach more people for Jesus in the Quad Cities. We need you to show through your giving that you are on mission with us to the Quad Cities. So, couple things. If you're an entrepreneur, if you've got your own business, whatever, would you consider giving a large one-time donation before the end of the year to help us pursue that? Or secondly, would you prayerfully consider increasing your giving, your monthly giving by some amount, by a certain amount, so that we can have more money in the budget to recruit and train a future church planter? Now, this isn't going to just happen it requires all of us to take action and to, and to step up. And so I'm, I'm praying that, that some of you would do that 
uh, in the coming year, in the next few weeks, that you would make these commitments to see God's mission move forward in the Quad Cities. Now, if you've been around here, you know we don't do large capital campaigns, right? We've only done two kind of offerings in the history of our church, and that was to raise money for our cottages and to raise money for another nonprofit. We try to do our best to keep our money, the money that we spend on buildings, as low as we can so that we have more money to spend directly on ministry, directly on people, and making an impact in our city. And the number one way that we can make an impact in our city is to plant another gospel-centered church. Now, anybody who in here is thinking, man, he just wants to, you know, you might be, we have a lot of cynicism about this. You might be thinking, oh, Justin just wants to expand his empire. Listen, there is nothing in me, in my flesh, that wants to do this again. All right? We had a, ro- I'm going to just tell you what happened last time. We had a rocking band. The whole stage was full. Every week, we just loved worship. We planted a new church, set half of musicians away. We went back to an acoustic set. Joel struggled. Acoustic <laughs> set. Week in and week out. We went from here to what felt like here. Oh, God. We feel like a church plant again. It was hard to find visit, hard to find volunteers for our kids' ministry. It was, it made, I had less, I didn't have Sam to fill in for me to preach anymore. I had to preach more often. It makes my job harder, all right? Do I want to do this again in one sense in my flesh? Absolutely not. But when I see the statistics, when I know people come to faith in church plants and more neighborhoods in our city and more cities in our quad cities need gospel-centered churches, I know it's what God's called us to do, and we've got to do it. So, priming the pump, that's what's coming down the pipe. I pray that you would prayerfully step up and step in with us. You can give online. You can give down here. That's coming in the future. So, let me pray, and we're going to jump in this morning. Father, I thank you for the work that you've done in and through us here at Sacred City. God, it is a gift So many churches are closing their doors. So many pastors are leaving the ministry. So many people are walking away from the church. And yet, because of your spirit, we thrive. We thrive. God, that is is such a gift. I thank you for the people this past year who have come to faith here at Sacred City, for the people who've been baptized here at Sacred City, for the people that have gotten married here at Sacred City, people who've had babies here at Sacred City, people who are growing their families. God, it's it's truly a gift. It's truly a gift. As many walk away from the faith, many are walking into the faith here. And so we celebrate that. Father, we come to your word this morning, a word that is quite confusing and difficult. And I just ask that you would lead us into truth, that you would shine a bright spotlight on you, on your plan, on your gospel, on your glory. You'd think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, that you would help me and help us understand what you'd have for us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, we are in Revelation 10 and and chapter 11. Our text today is one of the most cryptic and difficult to understand in all the Bible. So if you read it this week and you looked at it and you were like, what is going on? You are not alone. This uh, text presents us with a difficulty that is very unique for us. It's a very difficult text, and it's, it, it's unique in, its, in the problems it poses to us. Um, 
the difficult here, most Christians are not prepared to read this text and, and confront the difficulties uh, that's in it. And the difficulty is this. It's the temptation to interpret this vision that we see from the book of Revelation literally. Now, we are at Sacred City Bible-believing Christians. We believe that the Word of God is inspired, that it is infallible in its original manuscripts, that God spoke to men and inspired them to write down what He spoke to them. And in those original manuscripts, they are infallible. Now, we believe that the Bible should be taken literally when it is speaking literally. Okay, that's key. However, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he is not speaking literally, right? It's kind of, I'm being a little facetious, we should know this, right? We do not become salt after following Jesus. Rather, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. Christians are meant to possess some properties that are similar to salt. We are meant to be a moral preservative in a morally corrupt society. We are at, to add a distinct flavor to a culture because we're tied to scripture and we don't go with the flow. And so when you get around real Christians, they add flavor to the culture because everybody else goes this way with the culture. Christians are stalwarts against the culture. They add a different flavor to the culture, to a culture that's bland. Now, can you imagine how confusing it would be to read through the plethora of Jesus' parables and try to interpret them all literally? Jesus says, we're sheep. Do you want to interpret that literally? Jesus says, he's a shepherd. Okay, that's cool. But in the same parable, he says, and I'm the gate. What? The gate. Jesus is the gate. Right? We're told to gouge out our eyes if we can't stop lusting. I've never seen anybody actually apply this one to their own life, right? Cut off our hand, right? We're called to be trees that bear fruit. Now, we get it, parable, not a problem. We don't have a problem interpreting parables metaphorically. But this, unfortunately, the same, we have the same problem when we read the book of Revelation. This book is filled with beautiful images, some terrifying images, and they are not supposed to be interpreted literally. That doesn't mean they're not true. They are absolutely true. But the nature of the apocalyptic genre of writing, this is an apocalyptic genre of literature, it's not in existence today. This genre of literature isn't you, don't, you can't go to Barnes & Noble and find apocalyptic genre. It doesn't exist anymore. But the nature of apocalyptic is the writing is visual, the writing is spiritual, the writing is esoteric. Most of the time, here, here it is, most of the time all these crazy descriptive images have a rather simple physical analog. The one-eyed beast is actually just an apocalyptic way to describe a kingdom with one ruler. 
right? We've, we've seen this a little bit so far in the book of Revelation. Now, most of us, we probably say, okay, cool, I can get behind that. I get that. That makes sense to me. It's rather simple. It should make sense. But I want us to put a pin in that concept. Because as we get further into our text this week, you will see why it's so important that our text today is actually one of the most important, one of the most critical in all the book. The way you interpret and understand our text today will affect the way you interpret and understand the whole book of Revelation and what's going to happen at the end of all things. So let's get after it this morning. Now, just to situate us in our text, we worked through the first six trumpet judgments last week. But before the seventh and final trumpet judgment, there is this brief scene change, right? Think of it just a, you know, like you're watching a movie, something's going on, then flash to another scene. That's what's happening right now. Let's go to chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when seven thunders had sounded, it was, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and don't write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call that there to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Now, this is a little strange, but if we remember what has already played out in the earlier chapters of the book of Revelation, we won't get confused by some of the words here in this text used like angel. The word angel throws us off, doesn't it? Now, angel simply means messenger, okay? That's what it means. But look at the details of this angelic vision. He is wrapped in a cloud. He has a rainbow over his head. He has a face like the sun, legs like pillar of fire, a scroll in his hand. He's standing over all the earth with his feet on the sea and his feet on the land, and his voice is loud like the lion roaring. Now, what does that sound like? Every single one of these descriptors has already been used and applied to the resurrected, glorified, ruling and reigning Jesus Christ. So this is Jesus speaking again, right? It's Jesus speaking again. Now, why is he called an angel then? If it's Jesus, why is he called an angel? Well, in the Old Testament, when the pre-incarnate Jesus would show up, he was often called the angel of the Lord. If you remember, when Jacob wrestled the angel, Scripture makes clear that Jacob was also or actually wrestling God himself. 
That is Jesus before he took on flesh and came to dwell with us. Before he was born of Mary, Jesus shows up in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. Secondly, Jesus can be called an angel because he's delivering a message from God. Jesus is literally God's messenger here. If you remember from earlier chapters of Revelation, nobody could open the scroll in God's hands, right? Nobody could take it from him, but who? Jesus. Jesus walks up, takes the scroll, breaks the seal. Now we have this angel with an open scroll in his hand. The seals have been popped open, and he's about to deliver this to a human, to John himself. So Jesus literally is... God's messenger here, delivering the scroll to John. So in this scene, the glorified Jesus is taking the scroll that he took from the hand of God and he's giving it to the apostle John. And this scroll is a message for all of God's people. This scroll is a message, was a message to the first century Christians who were struggling and being persecuted and killed for their faith. And this scroll is a message to us today. Now, let me break some of those seals and give you a bit of a heads up on the scroll. We saw last week that the final judgment of God, the day of the Lord, Armageddon, right? The day when he will come back to judge the living and the dead and renew all the earth and set up his eternal kingdom has a set hour, a set day, a set month, a set year. And that day cannot be known by us nor can we do anything to speed it up or slow it down. It's on God's calendar, and as time progresses, we are moving closer and closer and closer to this end of all history. Now, the question remains, then how should we live in the here and now, right? How should a Christian live out their faith in a world that is under the judgment of God and waiting for his imminent return. To put it another way, what are we supposed to do while we wait? Should we be building bunkers and waiting it out? Should we just put it in the back of our mind and live like everybody else in the culture? Let our faith just be another one of our little descriptors in our profile on Facebook. Just another thing that we like. Just like Arbonne, just like CrossFit, just like novels, just like our political party. See, what is the Christian? When we read this, Christ is coming back to, what we'll see later, destroy the destroyers of the earth and to reward his saints, what are we supposed to do while we wait for him to come do that? Well, in a very strange way, I think we learn exactly what we're supposed to do in our text today. I'm going to put it very simple, simply, and then I'll break it down a little bit. One, we are to become gospel people. That's what we're, that's what we're here for. We are to become gospel people. And there's at least three key ingredients that I see from our text today to becoming a gospel person. One, we're going to have the food. Two, we're going to have the way. And three, we're going to have the reward. All right, so that's, that's my outline today. The food, 
the way, the reward. First, let's take a look at the food. Chapter 10, verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again. This is Jesus saying, go, or for the Father, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, the angel, take and eat it. Hmm. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it in my stomach, it was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many people and nations and languages and kings. We see at least two important lessons in this scene. First, and I don't have time this morning, so I got to get right to the point. First, it is not sufficient to have the word of God in your hand, on your shelf, or on your phone. We must eat it. It must be digested. Meaning that the word of God is meant to come into us, we must believe it and take it into our hearts. Now, here in this text, it might sound weird to us. We know scrolls are for reading. They're not for eating. But Jesus here is riffing off of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah said this, your words were found and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. That's Jeremiah 15, 16. Think about it. Food does nothing for us until we take it in. I had Hertz Donuts sitting on my counter for 24 hours before my willpower was chipped away and I opened the box and I took the glory of that Oreo Hertz donut and I brought it into myself. All right? At about 10.30 p.m., that sugar cooked up. Dang it, not sleeping now. Right? I'm joking, but that's the reality of food. Food does no good on your counter, right? Food, you can, you can read about food. You can read your cookbook all day long. Food has its magic when you take it in and you, it goes down into your body and your body digests it and it's there in the process of digestion that it turns into energy and your body transforms it to the ability to walk, move, talk, speak, do everything that we do. The same is true for the word of God. We must eat it. It's got to get in us. We must digest it. See, when you digest food, it literally becomes a part of you. 
When we digest the word of God, it literally becomes a part of us. It gets down in us. It transforms our desires. It changes the way that we see the world. It changes our character, our behavior, the way we look at our spouse, the way we treat other people, the way we treat our neighbors. The word of God has to come in, has to change us, has to be digested. Inside of us, that's what's got to happen. From the inside out. Now, every word in the word of God is good for us. But the apostle Paul makes clear that the gospel is of first importance. The gospel is the primary message that we need to internalize. And the gospel is a message that like this scroll here is bittersweet. You see in our text this morning that the scroll tasted good in John's mouth and then it grew bitter in his belly. What's going on there? Well, first, think about the message of the gospel. Gospel means literally good news. It's a message that gets proclaimed. It's not advice. It's never something you have to do or you have to make happen. See, at the time of this writing, when kings sent armies off to war, right, there were, there were no live video streams of the war. So we could, they could sit at home and watch their TV and know how the war is going, know how the battle's going on, right? And what happened, when, when you sent your loved ones off to war, it became a, a very anxious time, right? You were constantly worried and wondering, how's the battle going? Now, to... For one reason, if you lost the battle, then you could expect that conquering kingdom to come take over and, and, and ruin your land and oftentimes rape your women and subjugate a whole people group. So there was a lot of nervousness and anxiety at home waiting for news from the battle. So the, what would happen was, is the victorious army, they would go to battle, they would win the battle, and then they would send heralds to ride ahead of them and come back to all the cities of, their, of the nation or of the kingdom or whatever it was to announce their victory. So these heralds came pronouncing victory. They came bringing good news. They were called heralds. That's what they did. They would come into the town and say, praise God, the war is over. Maybe not praise God. The war is over. We won. Your husbands and your sons, they're coming back. Now, it, that is the same way the word gospel is used in the New Testament. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ in his life death, and resurrection has won the ultimate victory over evil. He has defeated death, hell, and the grave, and he promises salvation and new life to anyone who puts his faith in him and in his work. This is glory. This is good news. When you bring this in, it's like honey on your mouth. Think about it. This is what we say. There's lots of stuff we could say, but I am a new person. I am a new creation in Christ. I've been set free from my sin because of Jesus. I can know God the Father now in a new and intimate way. He calls me son now and not sinner. I can call him Abba, Daddy, Father, and not just judge, not just God. 
I can now fight this new, this, this remaining indwelling sin that's in me. I can now fight it with a new paddle, a paddle, with a new power. Paddle, that works too. <laughs> fight it with a paddle. Right? I can fight it with a new power. My brain was going on to 1 Peter while I was saying power. Or 2 Peter. 2 Peter says that the Christian has been given everything they need for life and godliness. When we come to Christ, God, in a sense, downloads into us himself, the Holy Spirit, which enables us to fight and resist our sin with a new power and a new self-control. It's a supernatural. And also in the gospel, I can remember that I've now been given this new identity by grace, one that I never earned, one that I can never lose that Christ has earned this reputation for me and he's given it to me by faith in the work that he's done on the cross. Now, all of these things that I just mentioned, they're all benefits of the gospel, the, the riches of Christ. And there are many more. And when we think about them and when we taste the benefits of the gospel, they're as sweet as honey on our lips. But let's be real. Believing the gospel is sweet but it's also bittersweet. The gospel is so good when we bring it in, but as we live it out, see, see, as it comes into us and it changes the way we live our life and it changes the type of person that we are as we bring it in and digest it, it always has upsetting ramifications. See, when I... I was a little hellion growing up. You can talk to my parents about that. <clears throat> I was in all kind of trouble, doing all kind of stupid stuff, breaking commandments, loving every second of it. And God saved me when I was about 18. And as I began to digest the gospel and bring it into my life and read his word and eat it, and it came in me, I began to change. And as I began to change, some people really liked it. Some people were really proud of me, really excited about the changes that I were making. But my closest friends didn't like it. Not going out, not doing the things I used to do, not laughing at the stuff I used to laugh at, not breaking the commandments I used to break, making them feel awkward. And slowly but surely, as I began to digest it and I, the gospel and I began to change from the inside out, all my friends didn't want to hang out with me anymore. I wasn't doing the things I used to do. See, you, got, you digest the gospel and you take it into you. You shouldn't be surprised when people start to reject you. You stop getting texts. You stop getting invites. You stop getting phone calls. People start pushing away sometimes. Your presence brings a conviction into their life. It comes sometimes makes them aware of the, the areas in their life that they need to change and they don't have the power to change and they don't want to change and so they'd rather not have you there with them. And as you grow in, 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 in becoming this gospel person, you realize that this is bittersweet because you're looking at your friends and your family members and maybe even your spouse and you're wanting them to have the same thing you have and have the same experience you have and know God like you know and have the sure and steady hope for the future that you have, but they're 
pushing away. It's bittersweet. Now, many times this, this comes as a surprise to us. We, we tasted the gospel, it was sweet on our lips, and now some of the ramifications get bitter in our stomach. Now, it should not come as a surprise because they rejected Jesus, they will reject you. But that is deeply upsetting, especially if it's your family or your spouse or your close friends. Now, I have many people in my life right now that I'm on mission to that think they're Christians. It's one of the hardest person to reach. It's a person who thinks they're a Christian. They're, they, say they're, they say they're a Christian. They say they follow Christ. But in reality, they're lying to themselves. Sure, they've heard the gospel, and of course they don't want to go to hell when they die, but they've never ate the gospel. They've never digested it and taken it in to them in such a way that it's actually changed what they love, changed what they worship, changed who they are. They are what many call today nominal believers. Nominal, that word means it exists in name only. That they claim the name of Christ but they're not his. They aren't gospel people. And chapter 11 shows us the destiny for nominal believers. And this is another bittersweet aspect of the gospel. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy, holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Okay. What is going on here? All right. I need you to put your theologian cap on just for a second, okay? There are three primary ways to interpret this passage. I've talked about it a little bit in the introduction to the book of Revelation that I wrote. I'm gonna go into it just briefly just to give us kind of a heads up, all right? Because many of us, as we start reading what I'm reading right now, remember I told you to put a pin in that symbolic understanding? This is why. We start reading what, we're about, what we just are reading and we, all, we kind of divert back to the default mode of our interpretation, which is taking things literal. If you've ever read the book Left Behind or watched the movie, that's what they do. Default mode back to taking things literal. Okay, now let me tell you, there's three ways to interpret this text and how you do it affects the whole book. Number one, you have what's called the futurist interpretation. The futurist interpretation is epitomized in the, in the Left Behind series. You take these things literal. What does that mean? That means when he's measuring out the temple, here's what the futurists believe. They believe that there is going to be 
a literal temple rebuilt in Jerusalem right now where there exists two um, Islamic holy sites. All right? The Dome on the Rock and the Temple, Al, I forgot the name of it, Al-Masak or something like that. The Mosque Al-Masak. Now, in order for that to happen, what needs to happen? Obviously, there's got to be a war, right? Israel's got to take possession of this land that's been possessed now by, um, by, by Islam. And they have to what? Rebuild a physical, real temple, right? That's got to actually happen. Now, there's a lot of problems with this view. Number one, I think it's clear even in our text that the, this is symbolic language. John even says the word symbolic, that it's, it's symbolic. Um, so I don't think we should interpret it literally. The second view is the preterist view, and this view believes that everything that's being described here was talking about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple that happened in AD 70. The problem with that view is almost all scholars and the early church taught that this book of Revelation was written in the early to mid 90s, 25 years after the destruction of the temple. So, I, I, and when you read it, this seems like something that's going to happen over the whole earth, not just in one localized place. So, I believe and I believe that the best way to interpret this book and this section of scripture is symbolically, okay? Not like it's going to happen specifically laid out in the future, but as a symbol of what's to happen. Now, let me get into it and explain it. I didn't want to go too far into all that. We see a temple here. Now, why not think that Jesus is going to come back and set up a temple? First off, did Jesus have a positive experience with the temple in the New Testament? He prophesied its destruction. He said, not one stone will be left on top of another. And he didn't say, but then in the end times, I'll rebuild the temple. No, no, no. All through the New Testament, what do you hear? We believers are the temple. We are the temple of Jesus Christ, right? So it's not like you're the temple until there's a real temple. And then ultimately, if you jump to Revelation 21, you realize there is no need for the temple in the new heavens and the new earth. So the fact that we would be hoping for the rebuilding of Israel, a rebuilding of a temple in Jerusalem, seems contrary to what the whole flow of Scripture has been. All right? Now, why are, here's the other thing about the, about the futurist view. They view, when, G, when, when they use the word Israel and they use the word church, they think those two things are separate realities in the New Testament. Right? We, we don't think. We think when they're using Israel and they're using church, they're talking about the people of God. It's the same it's the same people. Now, what you don't realize is this mentality, this futurist view has impacted even our politics in our country. One of the main reasons there's, uh, uh, on, specifically on the right-leaning, right there's such this pro-Israel position is because people believe that by supporting Israel, they're eventually going to get this land back and they're eventually going to build the temple and then Christ is going to be able to come back. That's the mentality. That's, that's part of the mentality of, of behind that. But if you read this text, I think how it's meant to be read in a symbolic fashion, you realize that the temple he's talking and the temple he's measuring out here is not a future physical temple. It's the people of God. That's what he's measuring off. All right. 1 Peter 2.5 says this. You yourselves 
like living stones. Remember? We are being built into a, a spiritual house. That's the temple. To be what? A holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what we see here in 11, 1 through 2 is John being given the commission, listen, to measure the temple just like a surveyor would come to your house to determine your property lines to determine what really belongs to you. John is told to measure the church, here it is, to see who really belongs to God. And it's interesting to note that the property line goes right down the middle of the visible church. The court of the Gentiles is a symbol of nominal Christians. People who are associated with the church or they claim the name of Christ, but they are not true members of the body of Christ. They haven't digested the gospel. They haven't really put their faith in Jesus Christ. As John says in 1 John 2.19, he says this, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they are not all of us. That there are people that come into the church and they profess faith and some even get baptized, but they're not true believers in Jesus Christ. And in this vision, John is given a measuring line where he can see in the spirit and he can see the dividing line between the pretenders and those who are in Christ. The nominal Christians and the true Christians. So the first thing we learned was that the real Christians feast on the gospel, and often its ramifications are bittersweet. The second aspect to becoming a gospel person is to walk the way. Now, in the book of Acts, before Christianity was actually called Christianity, it was called the way. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, people just started calling it the way. Do you follow the way? Are you in the way? This connotes the idea that Christianity isn't just, like I said before, adding something to your profile. It isn't just downloading a set of doctrinal beliefs. It's not just a belief system. It's not just something you check on your voter registration card. That Christianity is a way of life. It's a way that's different from other ways. It's walking in the way of Jesus. Jesus lived in community. Jesus lived a life close to the Father. Jesus lived serving others. That's the way. And the way of Jesus is often called the way of the cross. It involves suffering for the sake of the gospel. And that's exactly what we see happen now in the rest of these, or in the next 14 verses here. And 11, we see these, look, here's, here's where it gets weird, right? And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now that's 1260 days. That's the same as the two and a half years. It's just, or, you know, it's, it's, it's they're using this different terminology to describe the same amount of time. But look at this verse four. 
Here's what I'm talking about. You read the Left Behind books, these two witnesses are two awesome dudes that just stand up and they're, they're men and they prophesy and then they get killed and they get raised to new life and they're actually human beings, right? It's very interesting. Here's one of the reasons I don't think we should interpret it that way. You, let me tell you if this is convincing. Look at chapter four. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. The two olive trees, the two lampstands. So he's got two different descriptors of these two witnesses. Well, think about before, we've already heard this term lampstands. What were the lampstands in chapters two and three? Churches. The lampstands were churches, right? That's what's going on right here. We can't get sucked into interpreting these things literally. They are symbolic images of the whole Christian church or specifically the true Christian church, the people who were just measured out, real believers. This is who he's talking about in these next few verses. In verse four, obviously they're called lampstands. The lampstands in chapter two and three were all churches. John is seeing a vision here Listen, in the end times of the Christian church walking the way of Jesus in the midst of a culture that is set against them. In this next few verses, we're gonna see this. Well, we've already seen, they're called witnesses. Jesus witnessed, Jesus shared, Jesus preached, right? They're called Prophets, they're speaking prophetically. They're speaking the words of God to their culture. And it says they're sharing their testimony with anyone who will listen to them. This is what Jesus did. I come from the Father, right? This is what we are also called to do in the crazy times that we live in. We are called to witness to the truth. We are called to speak prophetically to our culture. We are called to share our testimony with anyone who will listen to us. That's what we do. And it's what's interesting is this is an implication of the gospel. As you eat it, as you consume it, as you digest it, you live it out. If you don't live it out, you aren't digesting it. If it hasn't changed the way you live, don't fool yourself. Brother, sister, I love you. You're not a Christian. Just own it. You're not one, right? You might be one in word. You're not one in actuality. And it's the greatest thing because you can wake up from that reality and you can actually put your faith in Jesus Christ and say, you know what? No, 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 no. I don't want to play the game anymore. I don't want to be religious and just come to church for a little spiritual pick-me-up. I want to be real. This is the way of Jesus. We believe the gospel and then we live it out. We live out the way of the gospel so that others might see and others might hear and others might taste and others might know the God of the gospel. Now, people ask me all the time, well, Justin, what does that mean for us today? Here's one of the things I think it means. It means for us in a crazy world that gets blown around by every news cycle that comes up, that we, because we know our king and we know what God's doing, we have a peaceful, prophetic presence in our city. A peaceful, prophetic presence. 
I ain't going, I ain't working. You know what? If you saw the letter that I posted from the Chinese pastor, Wang Yi, on, on, on Realm this week, if you haven't, you need to go read it. That's what it looks like. Three weeks ago, Wang Yi, him and 200 members of his church were rounded up by the communist Chinese government. They were thrown in the back of a van. Nobody, nobody's heard, of them sent, heard from them since. Arrested for being Christians. Arrested for preaching the gospel. And he sensed it. He knew it was coming. And so he wrote a preemptive letter to his church and to the world, really. If you don't hear from me, because I know they're after me, if you don't hear from me, here's how you behave. And I, if I could define it in one sentence, it is have a peaceful, prophetic presence. Don't worry. All they can do is kill me. I will testify to my king. I am here testifying to the reality of an eternal kingdom that will overthrow the Chinese kingdom one day. All they can do is kill me. And that's exactly what we see happen in chapter 11, verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Their preaching is powerful. Their, their testifying is powerful. Wang Yi's letter is powerful. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power of the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as they often desire. And when they have finished, here, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So it seems like, now listen, here's the other thing I've got to get into. If you read this Left Behind stuff, you've come to believe that there's some kind of this thing called the rapture that zaps Christians up into heaven while letting everybody else kind of suffer down here. That's actually not a biblical position. People who teach that think that Christ kind of comes back, zaps his church up, and then later on comes back again to get everybody else. As we see in the book of Revelation, there is no two comings, two second comings of Jesus Christ. There is one second coming of Jesus Christ, and Christians are enduring a lot of this destruction and this suffering, yet they're protected. We saw they've been, a seal has been placed on them in many ways, and they're protected. Keep reading. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and look, and conquer them and kill them. The church looks like it's destroyed. The church looks like it's been wiped out. Now I can't tell you how many times this has happened in history. How many times governments have said, we're outlawing Christianity, we're banning the church, in so many ways, it's so bad, but in so many ways, as soon as they do it, it just lights a fire under the true church. And the true church multiplies and grows. And that's exactly what's happened in China. But this gets weird. Verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. Look, that symbolically, see, symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. 
For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and language and nations will gaze at their bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Now, this has happened in all kinds of communist and socialist, socialist re regimes in the past. That Christians have been persecuted, Christians have been killed, and it has been indoctrinated into the government and into the people's minds in such a way that they're glad it's done. Get rid of these people. What's wrong with our world? The Christians are what's wrong with our world. Get rid of them and we get rid of judgment. We get rid of shame. We get rid of sin. We get rid of all these different things. And so the world looks at the persecution of the church and says, Verse 11, oh boy. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. The church may look like it's dead, right? The church may, the, the, it can look like the culture has won and, and a government has oppressed and a government is victorious. And you can put Christ and Christ followers under your boot and you can smother them. But after three and a half days, the spirit of God moves back in and the church wakes up. Now keep reading. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at the hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So here's the ugly truth. Just as the loving son of God came to this earth to save us and we killed him, think about that for a minute. The kindest, smartest, most Gentile man ever to be born of a woman who lived his whole life for others and for God Humanity hated him by and large. He was called a liar. He was called a son of the devil. He was crucified in the most heinous ways of death as a heretic. That is part of the way of Jesus. Suffering to glory. The Christian way is a path that's paved with suffering. You can see it, what's going on in China. You can see what's going on today, even with bakers and different people who are being persecuted for their faith. You can see it all over the world. But here's our next question, our last question. If the gospel is bittersweet in this life, if it's good news, but yet it comes with a lot of suffering, what's going to keep us in the fight? What's going to keep us walking the way when our stomach gets bitter, our friends walk away, our lifestyle is different than those in our, our social circles, right? We work our way up the corporate ladder, but our ways are divergent from those that we work with in such strange ways. It feels bitter to us. What's going to keep us in the fight? What's going to keep us on the path? That question leads us to the third ingredient to a gospel person. That's what the Greeks called our, our telos, 
And I'm going to use just the eternal reward of a gospel person. A telos is like this goal that you set. And if you're, Aristotle says that man is a goal-oriented animal or a goal-seeking animal. His life only has meaning if he's reaching and striving for his goals. That a telos is this thing that's out there. It's a goal that we're striving for that has this power that pulls us towards its direction. And as, here's the thing. If you know anything about setting goals, Accomplishing your goals is cool, but what's the best part about accomplishing goals is the person you become while you're on the path to accomplishing that goal. You become disciplined. You, you have stronger character. You become kinder, gentler, whatever it is. The person you become is the real reward of this goal. Now, see, our goals have a way of shaping our life and directing our course, and this is especially true for the gospel person. Look at 11, 15 through 19. Honestly, I think this right here is the greatest, is the ingredient that's missing from most Christians in our society. Let's read it. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The seventh trumpet symbolizes the end of human history, the end of time as we know it. And it inaugurates or it consummates Christ's eternal kingdom where he's going to reward those who have remained faithful to him, and he's going to destroy those who've been destroying his work and his kingdom and his earth. Let's keep reading. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. This is the moment where Christ shows up and says, now is the time. I'm taking back what's mine. I'm taking over this earth and I'm setting up my eternal kingdom. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. Now, guys, I want us to feel this if we can Christians who've been persecuted, Christians who've been killed, Christians who have remained faithful under fire, right? We're not talking about a war on Christmas, right? That person said, happy holidays. Oh, it hurt me so bad being persecuted. <laughs> We're talking about Christians who are being killed for their faith and they die. They die, they give up their life and they go to heaven and this is what they see. They hear the final trumpet blow. They hear Christ come back and say, I'm taking over the world. Now's the time. Now's the appointed time. My kingdom has come. And what do they do? They worship. They erupt in worship. Everything they've longed for their whole life is now in front of their face. What they believed by faith now they can touch. Now they can see with their eyes. And you have taken your great power and you began to reign. Look at the nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, that's measured people, the true people of God, both small and great, Praise God. Look at this. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. 
Listen, the gospel person takes their life, their faith, and their church very seriously. Because one day in the future, we are all going to stand before God's throne and be judged or rewarded for the works that we did here on earth. For gospel people who loved and served God, they'll be rewarded. For those who rejected Christ and lived for themselves, they never ate the gospel, they never consumed the gospel, they were never changed by the gospel, they're going to be destroyed when God rids the world of sin and once again comes near to us. See, that's what we see in the final verse of this chapter. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. Temple in heaven, right? There is no temple. That's God's people. Symbolic. Revelation 21 says there is no, we don't need the temple. He says there's temple. It's God's people. Look, it was open. What happened? The ark of his covenant was seen within his people. What is that? That was always symbolic of God's presence. The, the ark of the covenant housed the presence of God and they would take it around in the Old Testament and that was lost and destroyed when they got carried off to Babylon or, or someone, they lost the ark of the covenant. We have no idea where it's at. And now all of a sudden here in the new temple, the people of God, we see the ark reappear. That's God's presence drawing near, God coming through the Holy Spirit and dwelling in the life of his temple, in the life of his people. This is our great reward. This is the glorious end of the gospel. God with us, God coming near once again. Now, as I close, let us not forget how Jesus accomplished such a great salvation and what he did to secure for us this glorious future that's going to happen. See, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, knowing that he was going to be killed the next day, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup, the wine, and he says, this is my blood that's been shed for you. Eat it and drink it in remembrance of me. Eat it and drink it. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, every time you eat it and you drink it, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the price that Christ paid to purchase for us this future, this glorious inheritance of the saints. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I ask you to check your heart. If you are a nominal Christian, own it, accept it, repent of it. A true relationship with God can be found. Confess your sin, repent of your sin, turn and put your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Eat the gospel. Bring it down into your soul. Father, a sobering text. Sometimes pulling back the curtain on reality is arresting, it's confrontational. I thank you for standing in our path and changing our direction. I thank you for opening hearts the way that the sun opens the flower petals, that you open hearts and you change hearts. And I pray that you would do that this morning. 
pray that the power of the gospel would come in your people and encourage them to eat your word, to walk the way, and to long for our eternal reward or you will make everything right. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.